Was one of your resolutions this year to order less takeout? HelloFresh sends everything you need to get dinner on the table. No meal planning, all deliciousness. Get 16 free meals plus three free gifts with code MLM16 at hellofresh.com slash MLM16. Tyco, a notorious sham and the poster child for corporate greed. This 2002 scandal has gone down in history with many other white collar crimes of the era. However, because of its focus on individuals instead of the company Tyco itself, there are those that believe that this may have been a setup. Is Tyco really a mini Enron or was its CEO framed for fraud two decades ago? Hello and welcome back to Multilevel Mondays. I'm the Illuminati, and today we're going to be talking about Tyco and the millions upon millions that were stolen from the company. Though the case itself might seem cut and dry, mistrials and hindsight have provided us some interesting insights into the scandal. We'll start as always with a bit of background before getting into the scam itself. When Tyco was founded in 1960 by Arthur J. Rosenberg, it was originally a research laboratory doing experimental work for the government. A couple of years later, Rosenberg incorporated Tyco Laboratories to develop high-tech products in the commercial sector. According to encyclopedia.com, one of their earliest technological breakthroughs was a silicon carbide laser, the very first blue light laser to fire a nonstop beam at room temperature. However, by 1965, the company was far removed from its early days as a research lab in Waltham, Massachusetts, when they started acquiring everything from Industrionics Control Incorporated, Mule Battery Manufacturing Company, and Custom Metal Products Incorporated, the North American Printed Circuit Corporation, and more. Between 1963 to 1969, they went from having six figures of sales to more than $41 million. Unfortunately, despite their growth, stock prices fell, they made some bad investments, and the board wanted to make some changes. Founder Rosenberg was eased out and eventually replaced by Joseph Gassiano in 1973. Soon, things were looking up again. Tyco was listed in the New York Stock Exchange in 1974 and Gassiano purchased the Simplex Wire and Cable Company for $22 million in cash for Tyco. The following year, Tyco also bought up the market leader in automatic sprinklers, Grinnell, which had merged with ITT, International Telephone and Telegraph in 1969, following a controversial Supreme Court case. Apparently throughout the 50s, Grinnell purchased so many security-based companies from burglar alarm services to central station alarm companies that by 1961, the Justice Department said that Grinnell and their three subsidiaries were conspiring to monopolize the central alarm business. Grinnell was ordered to divest the stock and their president, James D. Fleming, was banned from corporate leadership. Grinnell appealed, which is why its case found its way to the Supreme Court, but the ruling was upheld. The ITT merger was doomed, making 1971 to 1973 losing years for Grinnell. But once Tyco bought them up, Grinnell was finally profitable again. This meant that Dennis Kozlowski, the vice president for Grinnell Fire Protection Systems was now part of the Tyco family. Tyco also bought up Ludlow and fast forward to 1980, they made Kozlowski the CEO of Ludlow. All in all, Tyco had an incredibly aggressive growth strategy, merging with ADT and gaining strong leadership positions throughout a variety of industries. Their CEO, Gaziano, suddenly passed away after heading the company for almost a decade and John F. Fort succeeded him, focusing on reorganizing the company into three sections. Fire protection and plumbing, electronics, and packaging. I know fire protection and plumbing sound like two different things, but apparently that counted as one section in this reorganization. Under his leadership in 1987, Tyco's sales passed the $1 billion mark. 
A few years after that in 1992, Kozlowski succeeded Fort as the CEO. Although there's plenty more that could be said about Tyco for these earlier decades, that's all we really need to know moving forward. They gobbled up any company of interest to them in sight and Kozlowski became their CEO after working in leadership roles with their subsidiaries. It's pretty safe to assume he knew how Tyco ran like the back of his hand. It's also worth noting how in 1999, during an interview with the New York Times, Kozlowski attributed their success to the company's pay for performance compensation system, according to the New York Times. The power of the individual is an idea that frequently comes up in conversations with Dennis Kozlowski. You hear it when he talks about the traits that will be required for the next generation of leaders. He also said that there is no one whose compensation is tied to Tyco's overall performance, aside from him and a few other people who he directly works with. Otherwise, if someone worked in the medical business or fire and smoke control areas, then that employee's performance will only be tied to that area or that subsidiary. Kozlowski added that he read Atlas Shrugged and other Ayn Rand books in college in his late 20s, which had a massive impact on him. We've touched upon Atlas Shrugged and the virtue of selfishness in a previous episode about Gout's Gulch and the concept of focusing on yourself as an individual to potentially unhealthy levels. Therefore, I find this interview where Kozlowski discusses monetary incentives and individualism incredibly telling, given what we're about to get into. Plus, as if to foreshadow his own actions, the article ends with the sentence, one individual can make a difference. So let's get into how Kozlowski did make a difference within Tycho and how it wasn't exactly for the better. Rather than a string of accounting errors or the entire company being a sham like we've seen with Theranos, the Fire Festival, et cetera, et cetera, the Tycho scandal was actually just based upon greed. A few years after he was hired as CEO, Kozlowski apparently decided he needed more incentive to do his job and began taking interest-free loans from the company. One of the earliest I was able to find in court documents was in 1996 when he borrowed $7.6 million, though the majority of these loans took place between 1997 and 2002. How these corporate loans worked is fairly simple. CEO Kozlowski, Chief Financial Officer Mark Schwartz, and former General Counsel Mark Belnick all gave themselves interest-free or very low interest loan rates, sometimes disguised as bonuses, as part of a key employee loan program that the company offered. These were never approved by the board, nor were they ever actually repaid. Instead, Kozlowski had an executive in human resources create confidentiality agreements, stating they couldn't speak publicly about their loans being forgiven and falsely claimed that the company's board had chosen to forgive the loans. The human resources official never went to the board and checked, so the board was never aware of this. The SEC did investigate Tyco from 1999 to 2000 for spring loading, but ultimately decided to take no action. And spring loading, by the way, is when the earnings of a soon to be acquired company are underreported so that when a merger happens, there's an appearance of an earnings boost afterwards. It wasn't until 2002 that Tyco's bookkeeping came into question once again, after a few incidents that caught the eye of the SEC. The first was a $20 million payment made to Tyco director, Frank Walsh. It was supposedly awarded in the late 1990s as a bonus for arranging Tyco's acquisition of CIT Group, what when the board read about the payment in a proxy statement in January, 2002, they demanded he return it. Apparently Frank said adios and walked out of the board meeting in refusal. An article from the New York Times came out around the same month claiming that Kozlowski and CFO Mark Schwartz sold stock by returning it to the company. By returning shares this way, they didn't have to disclose the sale in the same way they would need to if they had gotten the money on the open market. Kozlowski returned $70 million worth of stocks while Schwartz returned 35. They also returned their shares when Tyco's stock was up and later received new stock options to replace the shares they sold. As Kozlowski told the New York Times, 
I'm paid in Tyco stock. We, the board, everybody feel the best way to keep management's interest aligned with shareholders is to keep 100% of our net worth in Tyco stock. Tyco shares plummeted in the wake of this, but Tyco promised transparency to their shareholders moving forward. People speculated if Tyco was manipulating their cash flow, and Wall Street analyses were starting to ask questions. However, the senior VP of Federated Investment Management said Tyco was unfairly being compared to Enron and that he didn't believe there was any fraud. He simply thought they were pushing the envelope in terms of tax management and accounting. While this was a sign of things to come, at this point in time, no one knew the extent of the fraud behind closed doors. The next questionable bit of information came six months later in June. In anticipation of the investigations against him, Kozlowski resigned on June 3rd, only to be indicted on June 4th for evading sales taxes on $13 million worth of art he purchased to furnish his Manhattan apartment. According to the grand jury indictment, two of the pieces he skipped out of the 8.25% New York sales tax was for a Renoir, worth $5 million, and a Claude Monet landscape, which cost about $4 million. The charges against him alleged he signed false documents to make it look as if the paintings were purchased outside of New York. Kozlowski has another home in New Hampshire, presumably since that's where Tycho's headquarters are located, but the paintings were immediately shipped to New York. This indictment followed a five-month-long investigation involving numerous art collectors and dealers, as well as other super rich that believe themselves to be above the law. After the shady art deal, investors had all the more reason to finally start being suspicious of Tycho and take another look at their accounting. Another few months later in September, 2002, the bombshell dropped. Kozlowski and Schwartz were indicted on charges that they reaped $600 million from Tyco through stock fraud, unauthorized bonuses, and falsified expense accounts. Again, that's why I find it hilariously pathetic that tax on a painting he could have absolutely paid for was just the first charge. And he had been spending money that he made in the most frivolous of ways I've ever seen. Apparently he bought a $6,000 shower curtain, a $2,000 trash can, and threw a $2 million birthday party for his wife in Italy. He also used millions under a program meant to pay for employees moving expenses on a $10 million vacation home in Utah, a $4 million apartment in Manhattan, a yacht and more real estate. The pair were also accused of bribing multiple Tyco employees and the Manhattan district attorney, Robert Morgenthau, claiming that they created an elaborate covert system in 1995. He referred to it as the top executive's criminal enterprise and stated that they covered their tracks by limiting internal audits and bypassing Tyco's legal department when filing disclosure documents. Morgenthau considered charging the entire company with a crime, but didn't because it would affect the other employees. From the sounds of it, this case truly was about the disgusting greed about the select few at the top. Kozlowski, Schwartz, as well as former general counsel, Mark Belnick, all appeared in handcuffs before the state Supreme Court in Manhattan and pled not guilty to the charges. Belnick was released on a million dollar bond. And while there were more than just two people involved in the scheme, Kozlowski and Schwartz largely became the two most recognizable names behind it. Both Schwartz and Belnick's lawyers seemed keen to let Kozlowski take the fall alone, with Schwartz's lawyer implying that his client was a victim of an overly aggressive team of prosecutors trying to take down Kozlowski. Tyco as a company also filed its own lawsuit against Kozlowski, seeking the return of his income and benefits since 1997 and forfeiture of his severance pay, they stated. Mr. Kozlowski was one of the highest, if not the highest compensated executive in the country. Despite him being paid handsomely, he misappropriated hundreds of millions of dollars from Tyco that have not been repaid. He failed to inform and actively concealed from the compensation committee the true facts about his compensation. Nine of the 11 directors also were not reelected in order to try and restore investor confidence and any gifts from Kozlowski were placed under scrutiny. For example, Kozlowski apparently tried to persuade a brokerage firm to fire a more friendly stock analysis that he'd given thousands of dollars worth of gifts to. 
When the analyst got the job, they traded expensive gifts again. The analyst thanked Kozlowski for getting him the job and Kozlowski sent him one as a congratulations. It was later revealed that the analyst's name was Fu Young of Merrill Lynch & Co. Young would allegedly recommend investors to buy Tyco stock while expressing negative views of the company in private. Merrill fired Young for this later and suspended him from the industry for a year. Though Kozlowski was the main player in this, he certainly wasn't the only one aware of his schemes and misleading reports. The scam itself was convoluted and frustrating and the trial reflected as much, or trials, should I say, though we will get to that in a moment. The complaint filed by the state of New Jersey, the Department of Treasury, and more against Tycho, Kozlowski, and others involved is a pretty lengthy one. And it'll be in my sources if you'd like to take a look at the entire document yourself. But to summarize, Kozlowski used loan programs selling his stocks and falsified proxy documents to inflate the company's worth. Kozlowski was by far the worst offender who treated Tycho as his piggy bank. In one case, he withdrew about $62 million for relocations and then paid about 20, forgave the other 20, and reclassified the other 20 to loan accounts. And tens of millions were hidden in reserve accounts forgiven. Kozlowski did everything possible to cover his tracks, continuing to take whatever he wanted. Before the trial even began, there were consequences handed down to those who had been involved. Richard Scalzo, PwC engagement partner who claimed to have audited Tycho's reports was barred from practice. He completely and utterly failed to conduct diligent audits. And according to the SEC, Scalzo should have seen warning signs about Tycho executives in 1997. Morgenthau found that he was reckless, hence the ban, but not criminal. It's truly a shame this wasn't caught sooner, especially when it could have been had due diligence been performed. About a year later, after the scandal came to light in October, 2003, the trial began. At the time, multiple corporate scandals were making headlines like Enron and WorldCom, leading to comparisons between the three. Justice Michael Obis cautioned prospective jurors for the Tycho case that no matter the similarities, quote, we are not here to conduct some kind of sociological survey. We are not here to send messages to anybody. This is not a case about Enron or WorldCom or any other company you may have heard about. This is not an evaluation of the New York Stock Exchange or how much corporate executives should be paid. This is about the charges in this case, end quote. At the time, the trial was estimated to take about two months. And while juror members admitted they definitely had their opinions about the flurry of recent corporate news scandals at the time, they said they would be fair and impartial. When Schwartz eventually testified five months after the trial began, it was February, 2004. He said he believed he didn't do anything illegal during the 11 years he worked for the company. Tyco reported their largest profit since Kozlowski left that same month and a massive Tyco investor testified during the trial. The man that testified was a fund manager, Kenneth Charles Feinberg of David Selected Advisors, who worked at a firm that purchased almost $2 billion in Tyco shares. According to Feinberg, he was never aware of the bonuses that Kozlowski had taken and he'd purchased more than 41 million Tyco shares since 1998. Despite things not looking great for Kozlowski, he and Schwartz did have a massive win on March 8th, 2004, when the largest charge against them, enterprise corruption, was thrown out. Judge Obis claimed that the court had serious reservations about the applicability of the charge, seeing as it was typically utilized to bring down organized crime operations or mobsters. This still wouldn't affect the potential amount of jail time against the two, considering that grand larceny, falsifying business records, and violating state business laws were all on the table. Just a couple weeks after that though, the entire six month case came to a grinding halt when a mistrial was declared. It began on March 25th when juror number four supposedly flashed an okay symbol to the defense table. Considering how large this case was, her hand symbol became the subject of many newspaper headlines and a way to say they painted her in a less than flattering light would be an understatement. The New York Post called her a batty blue blood and a granny holdout juror, going so far as to make personal attacks and reveal her identity. 
They said that juror four was a 79-year-old divorcee that had her heritage dates back to the Revolutionary War. The Post also said she was part of an exclusive ladies club, going so far as to even say what part of the city she lived in, what her building looked like, and to say that she's self-centered, paranoid, and loves to be contrary. The fact that the New York Post went this far is pretty disgusting. Commenting insulting personal things about celebrities is bad enough, but to go this far about a civilian is really, really despicable. They're unleashing such massive hate on her, and whether or not Juror 4 is a terrible person or not, I don't think this was appropriate. A mistrial was averted after this somehow, but about a week later, it was clear that the trial had been compromised. Juror four received a letter pressuring her to convict and the jury, while just on the verge of coming up with their verdicts, had become poisonous and irreparably compromised according to the jurors themselves. The outside pressure, juror four's identity being revealed to the press, all of it was enough to finally declare a mistrial. No one was happy about it, not even Kozlowski, and one juror started crying when the judge made the announcement. Even so, the process started all over again and the judicial process began anew. In the days and weeks that followed, news sources speculated if naming juror four went too far. Though no laws were broken, the communications director for the New York State Office of Court Administration said it had been an unwritten rule in the news business that you don't reveal such information. When you do, well, that's when mistrials, outside pressure, and things of that nature can happen. Other news sources defended their behavior, stating that Juror 4 drew attention to herself with that thumb to forefinger okay sign. Juror 4 continued to deny that she'd even done such a thing, stating that she was rubbing her temple or brushing her hair back. Still, she claimed that she wouldn't have actually convicted Kozlowski and Schwartz, later stating, intent. Intent was the center of the whole case, at least for me. I don't think they thought they were committing a crime. When she occasionally raised her hand on a straw poll to vote guilty, she claimed that she felt she was abandoning my own standards and beliefs. I was trying to be somebody else. Whether there was an okay hand symbol or not, a new trial began in early 2005. This time, prosecutors took a different approach. They didn't spend time talking about the $6,000 shower curtain, the $2 million birthday party, and the selfish unearned luxuries Kozlowski and Schwartz spent their millions of stolen money on. Instead, they focused on the illegality of their actions. Previous jurors said their old strategy had been unfocused. So for take two, the prosecution spent countless hours refining their strategy. Maybe in some ways the mistrial was a good thing. It allowed them another chance. Ruth said intent was the most important piece for her and the prosecution after deliberating, hammering home some of the criminal intent and Kozlowski's concealed actions were able to win over the new jury. In September, 2005, Kozlowski and Schwartz were sentenced to eight and a third to 25 years in prison for grand larceny, conspiracy, falsifying business records, and securities fraud. All in all, it was 22 of the 23 counts against them. Kozlowski was ordered to pay $170 million in fines and Schwartz, 72 million. John C. Coffey, an expert on sentencing and white collar crime, said at the time that he doubted they'd serve more than 10 to 12 years. They are notorious now, he said, but by the time they're eligible for parole, he said, there'll be a footnote in history. And before we get into the fallout of what follows after and the potential innocence of these executives, let's take a moment to thank today's sponsors. When it comes to New Year's resolutions, we all love a cheat code and Mint Mobile has the perfect one to help with your savings goals. They can help you cut your wireless bill to $15 a month. So how do they pull off this pure magic you ask? Well, Mint Mobile is the first company to sell premium wireless service online only. And they pass that savings on with a bananas starting rate of only $15. And I'm sorry for the bananas thing. I've been playing Bloons Tower Defense 6 and all I can think about is bananas. All plans come with unlimited talk, text, and high-speed data on the nation's largest 5G network. Plus you can keep your phone, your number, and all of your existing contacts. 
And with Mint Mobile, you can choose the amount of monthly data that's right for you and stop paying for data you don't even use. I've had them for over a year now, and it has by far been one of the most satisfying switches I have ever made in my entire life. So to get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, make sure you go to mintmobile.com slash MLM. That's mintmobile.com slash MLM. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash MLM. Did you know that there's like a million gimmicks out there right now promising you an amazing night's sleep? But no matter what, you're sleeping on a terrible mattress and that sleep will be terrible no matter what. And that's why it's worth getting a purple mattress. Only purple mattresses have the Gel Flex Grid, a super stretchy, ultra squishy material that adapts and flexes around pressure points and doesn't retain heat. The Gel Flex Grid supports your back and legs and yet also cushions your shoulders, neck, and hips. Purple has already sent me their pillows before and I love them and Casper has stolen my pillows, but now this year they sent me a whole mattress and oh my God, the sleep is life-changing. I already actually have some friends that have a purple mattress in their guest room. So I've slept on it before I had the chance to try and get my hands on a mattress and then purple sent me one anyway. So it was kind of like this weird convenient moment, but like it is so comfortable. And I'm a hot sleeper. So it really keeps me cool through the night, which is something I was kind of shocked and surprised by. It was a little weird at first, the first night I totally admit it, but once I got used to it, I cannot get enough of it. So start getting a great night's sleep and having a great mattress. Get a purple mattress. Go to purple.com slash MLM and use code MLM. For a limited time, you can get 10% off any order of $200 or more. That's purple.com slash MLM with code MLM for 10% off any order of $200 or more. Purple.com slash MLM promo code MLM. Terms apply. Though Kozlowski and Schwartz were put away, investors obviously were not happy. They'd been lied to about the company's worth. They'd hidden millions in executive compensation and former director Walsh had been secretly paid $20 million under their noses. He wasn't sentenced to prison by the way, though he did plead guilty to securities fraud. Plus the Securities and Exchange Commission argued that Kozlowski's aggressive accounting methods, once seen as a positive for Tyco, had inflated their profits. In 2007, Tyco finally settled with their investors, agreeing to pay them half of whatever they could obtain from Kozlowski, Schwartz, and Walsh, as well as a $2.975 billion to those who bought their securities from December 13, 1999, up until June 7, 2002. A few years later, Tyco seemed to get back on their feet again after becoming the face of corporate excess and greed for a time. They split into three companies, ADT for residential security, another branch for flow control products and services, and a third for fire and commercial security businesses. Yet years later, another certain someone seemed to get back on their feet again too, Kozlowski. After serving only six and a half years in prison, he was released in 2015, and in 2017 was a merger and acquisition specialist for Fort Lauderdale-based Harborside Advisors, a company his wife owns. Kozlowski also said in his website biography that he parted ways with Tyco in 2002, which is a really interesting way of saying he was accused of stealing hundreds of millions of dollars from them, if you ask me. Kozlowski added that he takes responsibility for the problems that were created and the damage that was done, while also stating that he only attracted the attention of prosecutors because he did a lot of business with a handshake or phone call, as opposed to written down and by the book methods. Kozlowski also noted that his sentence was longer than mass murderers and said, quote, once you go through the public humiliation, a year in jail is as punishable as eight years of jail because you're not going back to your life, end quote. And I find the last sentence especially infuriating for me, him saying he can't go back to his life. 
Kozlowski was working as a merger and acquisition specialist in Florida at a company owned by his own wife. Kimberly has a management role and investment in Vertex Systems, a $40 million revenue company. And she's the chairwoman of the board of GoGoMeds.com, a $100 million pharmaceutical company. Kozlowski may not be buying $6,000 shower curtains anymore. A 2015 New York Times article painted him and his wife as a relatively average couple. Still, by Kozlowski's own admission, he's not recognized much anymore. Considering the crimes he's been convicted of, he has managed to do fairly well for himself post-prison. However, there are those that believe that Kozlowski isn't as guilty as prosecutors portrayed. Though this is the story you've probably heard of Tycho thus far, another theory has emerged that Kozlowski was actually framed. Welcome to Eye to Eye. When former Tyco CEO Dennis Kozlowski was convicted of looting hundreds of millions of dollars from the company, he went from a life of extreme excess to mopping floors and slinging hash in prison, earning a dollar a day. Most of the money I earned was in the appreciation of Tyco stock. One year you made, I think, $170 million. I'm not sure 170, but I made over 100 million. Well, more money Recently, in a 2020 Nantucket Magazine article, Kozlowski has started telling his own side of the story. Writer of The Fall and Rise of Dennis Kozlowski wrote that District Attorney Robert Morgenthau was up for re-election and determined to make an example out of Kozlowski and contended that Kozlowski had already been convicted in the court of public opinion before the trial actually began. Kozlowski said he made mistakes stylistically and he felt his rights were violated when celebrity lawyer David Boyes was hired by Tycho, explaining that his job was to win, it wasn't to find truth and justice. Allegedly, Boyes even hired a PR firm just to disparage Kozlowski. While I really cannot confirm this, we know from what happened with Juror 4 that people were very eager to jump on and furiously attack those that seemed to support those suspected of being white collar criminals. In this interview, Nantucket Magazine asked, For nearly 27 years, the company grew exponentially. Seldom do people go after those who enrich them, but in your case, the board came out with steak knives. During your years at Tyco, you were both CEO and chairman. Did that type of control play into what many thought was your overreaching in compensation? Kozlowski responded, we had a separate compensation board, the compensation committee, who set the compensation. We had a senior executive, the head of human resources, who met with the compensation committee without me present. I did not attend compensation meetings. I never once calculated my own bonuses. Our finance group did the calculation and the deal was that our outside auditors had to sign off on the compensation before I was paid. The amount of my compensation was a $1 million base. The remainder was variable and at risk. I was paid in stock by how well the company's earnings were. I own stock like any other shareholder. I had to achieve certain milestones to be paid cash bonuses. As I met those milestones, typically our earnings went up and the stock went up. The stock doubled a few times over a number of years. Anybody that invested alongside me was going to earn the exact same amount of money. So while Kozlowski may have been given what was astronomical paydays, it seemed fitting when Tycho was doing astronomically well, right? At one point, Kozlowski even stated he might actually wanted to pass the baton onto someone else and retire, but they agreed to triple his salary to keep him as CEO. He knew he was valuable, so the millions and millions he had in bonuses didn't feel like a far stretch. Plus, if he had truly devastated Tyco, then why did hundreds of employees, senior staff, secretaries, and people up and down the Tyco organization visit him in prison? Some of them are apparently even friends with him to this day, which doesn't really support the narrative of Kozlowski being thoughtless and entirely selfish. One article entitled, David Kozlowski Was Not a Thief, was also published in the Harvard Business Review when Kozlowski was released. Writer Catherine Neal states that in all major corporate scandals at the time, think Enron and WorldCom, 
defendants are charged with federal crimes and in federal court, whereas he was not charged with any federal crimes, but he was charged with state crimes and tried in state court, then subsequently brought to state prison. She said that his bonuses were written via a compensation policy and calculated correctly, even though there was no record of their approval in board meetings. However, the record of the meetings themselves is supposedly unreliable because these notes, also known as meeting minutes, were calculated before meetings by someone who had never even attended them. Plus, for the board of directors meetings, there were no meetings minutes whatsoever. Even some directors that testified during the trial said they couldn't recall approving the bonuses, while others say they didn't approve them. Neil writes, at worst, Kozlowski made some poor business decisions that left him vulnerable to attack. He was the victim of failed corporate governance, a weak board, zealous prosecution, and bad timing, but he was not a thief. Neil has even written a book about her research entitled Taking Down the Lion. Another article from Fortune Magazine even describes how Kozlowski is helping ex-convicts these days and is serving as chairman of the Fortune Society, a nonprofit devoted to helping ex-felons re-enter society. He's been active with the group since 2012, and while in prison, he taught GED courses. It's worth noting that this position as chairman is unpaid as well, perhaps proving that this is something Kozlowski is genuinely passionate about. Does this make him innocent? No, but it shows there may be something to Kozlowski that we didn't see before. Like with any case, we don't know what happened behind closed doors. However, the reason I find the Tycho case so interesting is because of the recent news that he may have been innocent or at least less guilty all along. Perhaps the fact that this was about individuals instead of an entire corporation being charged supports the theory that Kozlowski was set up. Or perhaps it shows that prosecution simply had the right man and knew the issues boiled down to Kozlowski's greed. It's not as if someone that can afford a $6,000 shower curtain is going to be sympathetic to the average person. Still, I'd be really interested in hearing your thoughts on this one. But with all of that being said, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Multi-Level Mondays and I hope you learned something new. If you did, make sure that you're liking, following, and subscribing so that you can stay up to date with all the latest episodes. I really appreciate you spending some of your time here with me this Monday, and I'll see you in the next one. Bye.